he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all his ways. In their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall come, call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. I don't know if you know the uh, name of that psalm or what people have called it. They call it the warrior psalm, and it happened to be the psalm that the uh, people uh, that went off to Iraq, the Iraq war, used as their psalm, and coincidentally, being the 91st psalm, it also was in the year 1991. And there is a pattern which seems to run through the psalms, which corresponds with the years of the calendar since 1948, when Israel became a nation. Kind of an interesting little thing here. Um, we'll go ahead and get started in prayer. How's that? Heavenly Father. Oh, glorious Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for this beautiful green cathedral that you've given us. And Thank you for this day. No wind. So far, there's no planes flying overhead, and things are just really, really beautiful out here. We, we thank you for that. And we praise you for every crow that comes by and makes noise or every cricket that starts chirping because they are the work of your hands. And you ordained them to be here with us. And if you withhold them from us, we thank you for that as well. You're a great and wonderful God. I ask that you be with us in this service. Help us to handle your word properly and to... Uh, exalt you and bring you glory through our lives throughout the week. All these things and so much more we petition in the glorious and the beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right, I have a couple of announcements here. Um, I'm always looking for inviters of others. We have a couple people that uh, generally love to bring people along, and uh, if everybody does that, uh, uh, as you notice, today's a smaller crowd, and then sometimes we have larger crowds, and it all depends on what's going on and what football game is playing or whatever. But uh, um, if we uh, have inviters of others, then there should always be enough people to make it uh, uh, warm and comfortable. And the reason why I say that, I was thinking about it this morning. It's not a pride issue with me, but it is much, much harder to preach to a few people than it is to more people. If you have 30 people, 
it's easier. If you have 300 people, it's easier. And if there's 30,000, I can tell you, it's not that difficult. You would think it's just the opposite, but it's not. Uh, when there's a couple people, you tend to get fixated on just a couple of eyes, and it really makes it difficult. Anyway, um, please consider inviting others. And um, I'd like everybody here, as I ask every week, to remember Paul and Elaine Stoll in prayer. They are our missionaries from Church on the Beach. Uh, they're over in Japan, and uh, they are just doing wonderful work. And I would ask that you uh, keep them in prayer, especially I was thinking about this this morning. They're way up in the north of Japan where it snows starting about this time of year, and it gets up above the, the roofs of houses. It's, it's just a brutal place to live. And, uh, you know, uh, they're getting up there in years, and I would ask that you would just... Uh, consider them in your prayers. Uh, the upcoming elections, once again, I say this every week unapologetically, is that one party, uh, I don't care what party you vote for, this is a personal choice, but uh, one party has made it their stand to support homosexual marriage and to uh, fight against the Defense of Marriage Act, and they also have the stand of abortion. And both of those are not, they're not unbiblical, they're anti-biblical. They are working against God and what he has ordained for us. And therefore, and I say this time and again, and people like to disagree with me on this precept, you cannot uh, separate your moral position in life with the actions you take. And therefore, if you vote for something that is anti-biblical, then you are morally aligning yourself with that. So I would ask everybody to consider that and to do what is right I don't think it's going to help this election. I think it's probably a goner because this nation deserves what we get. Um, but I do pray for our nation, and I, uh, I love our nation, and I would ask that uh, the Lord would be merciful on us. We'll hope that that's the case. Um, I am wearing a bandana today, and this is something that just is so touching to me. I have to mention it. Uh, you know, I publish these on YouTube, and um, I have people that watch them, and they'll email me and ask questions and this and that, and we become friends uh, somebody got my address, and uh, I know she doesn't have a lot of money. I just know this, and she's raising a daughter by herself, and uh, she writes me letters from time to time, and it's like artwork. I don't know how the postman can even see the address and name because it's so filled with artwork. Well, this week she included a bandana, and I have to thank Heather for that. It was a real nice thing for her to do, and uh, I'll wear this, you know, just with joy in my heart all the time. And one other thing that I didn't know about, and I, I don't know why I didn't know about this, but uh, those of you that know James that comes out to church on the beach, the, the guy that's very jolly and makes everybody happy, he um, posted on a prayer group a while ago, about a month and a half or so ago, asking for prayer for direction because he wanted to be a missionary. And so we're praying for that, but I had no idea what his intentions were. And I thought he was just praying about what type of a missionary to be. I, I, you know, I'm just thinking he's, you know, when he knows, he'll let us know. And uh, somehow, I don't know how this happened, but he just left, and I never knew that he had left. And this is the guy, if you know, he's the one that has his truck out here. It's a little white. It's got like 500,000 miles on it. It's completely overloaded with air conditioning parts. And um, uh, he's got pens that are uh, Velcroed onto the side of the truck. And all you do is you take a pen, and you write on the truck a prayer, and it's an in indelible ink. And, uh, but eventually, even with the, uh, the wind and the rain and everything, they wash off. But he goes, you know, wherever he goes, he tells people this is the prayer truck. And people write their prayers. And this man gets up at like 3 or 4 every morning of his life. And he prays over every single individual prayer that's on his truck. And, well, he, he just left. He got in his truck, and he's driving around America with this prayer truck. And that was the mission that he wanted to do. And I don't think he's 
being supported by anybody in this. He's just out there doing this out of the love of his heart. And, uh, you know, we should do everything we do to the glory of God. And, you know, I'm out here preaching on the beach, but I have an ulterior motive is that I would like to support my wife and myself at some point. And uh, I'm not saying that I wouldn't do this anyway, but you see what I'm saying? Jim is just doing this because he loves Jesus and he wants to pray for people. And I think there is no ulterior motive. There's, uh, this is a real man of God. And I got to tell you what, I saw a, a, a photo on his wall this week and I, I just, I stopped. I couldn't breathe when I saw it. A state trooper had pulled him over and was making a prayer request on his truck. And I thought, praise God for that. Absolutely. You know, this, this is a man that absolutely has a heart for the Lord. And I, I am overwhelmed at what Jim is doing. I am absolutely overwhelmed because I didn't realize it until this week. I just thought, you know, he's out doing something. And I had no idea. I just never made the connection. So stupid me because I talked to him on Facebook every single day of my life. But here's Jim out there driving around America. This, this was uh, the cop that was signing his uh, truck was between... Little Rock, Arkansas, and Memphis, Tennessee. So he's gone out quite a ways, and he's got a ways more to go. But uh, great things coming from uh, our friend Jim, I know. And I know that people are being blessed by him, and I know that people are being edified through his prayers. So please keep Jim in prayer as well. That's our second missionary from this teeny little church on the beach. Getting broken up there. Um, Today we're going to have a New Testament reading. It will be um, Romans 6, verses 1 through 13. And you know, I like to read and just give a couple little commentaries. It's not, a, uh, not anything deep. I just make commentaries as they come off the top of my head, and I don't prepare for this specifically for that reason. Uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 6 of the book of Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And I'm going to talk about that just a little bit today. But the uh, answer is certainly not. You know, in other words, Paul was making the point that through our sins, God is glorified because he shows greater mercy on us when he forgives us for more sins. And Paul asked this obvious question, well, if that's the case, maybe we should sin more. And should grace abound? And certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live in it any longer? Now, okay, obviously we died to sin through the death of Jesus Christ. It was a high price to pay to take care of our sins. Why would we do live any longer? Um, verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Real quickly, I'll uh, state this. I always ask if people want to be baptized, and uh, I explain that believer's baptism is something that comes after salvation. It's not before salvation, like sprinkling. That does nothing. Paul states this again and again in the New Testament, that our baptism is one that comes after conversion, and it is a picture of what Christ Jesus did. Christ went into the grave, and we are put under the water. Christ rose to newness of life, or through the power of the resurrection, and we are risen out of the water to newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's just what he's uh, saying right here. So, um, verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him into death. I'm sorry, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, not committing those sins that we were committing before, which required our salvation in the first place. Verse 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, buried with him, raised to newness of life, certainly we also shall be uh, in the likeness of his resurrection. Eternal life, death has no mastery over us, we will live forever. That doesn't mean these physical bodies which are part of the corrupt creation. It means our eternal spirit will be re- 
will be united with an eternal body and we will be like him forever. All right, verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. And Jesus speaks about this. Paul speaks about it. It's, it's just an obvious tenet of the Bible from Genesis 3. We are either slaves to sin or we are slaves to righteousness. And there are, there's no other way around it. Uh, it. The most pertinent verse in the Bible as to why Jesus came is explained in uh, 1 John chapter 5, or maybe it's 1 John 3. That, uh, uh, this is the reason that the Son of Man was manifest, or the Son of God was manifest, that he might destroy the works of the devil. In other words, we either belong to Satan or we belong to Christ, and there's no, there's no other choice in it. So much for all paths leading to heaven. Um, verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Going back to what he said a second ago. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. You know what Peter said in uh, Acts chapter 2? He said it was impossible that death could hold him. Why? Because he was born sinless. He didn't inherit Adam's sin because he was born of the Holy Spirit and through a woman. And the sin transfers through the man. So he was born sinless and he also lived a sinless life. Therefore, death could not hold him because the wages of sin is death, and therefore he will live forever. By the power of the resurrection, he can never die again, and we are like him in that respect when we come to Jesus Christ by faith. 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, he's going to make a comparison to what Christ did to us. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Going back to verse 1 now, should we actively sin so that God is glorified? No, he said certainly not. Um, uh, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. The therefore says go back and read everything I just told you and that'll explain what I'm telling you. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as righteousness of, uh, as instruments of righteousness to God. All right, this is the word of the Lord. He's telling us not to actively participate in sin. We all fall short. Anybody here that uh, doesn't believe that probably hasn't been regenerated by the Holy Spirit because that's the, one of the things he does is to convict us of the sin that we continuously get in. But we are to be sanctified and grow in holiness as we ever march towards the coming of Jesus Christ to once and forever remove us from the presence of sin. And man, will that be a glorious day. All right, real quickly, I'm going to read you one more psalm, and uh, then we're going to go ahead and get into the, uh, the sermon. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitude of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies round about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth, the heavens declare his righteousness, and all the peoples see his glory. Let all be put to shame who serve carved images, who boast of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, Lord, are most high above all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. You who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. 
Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holy name. Amen. Okay, now today is Genesis 19, verses 27 through 38. I told somebody wrong before the sermon. I hope you get the pun in the title and in the three sub-points of this sermon. Okay, there's a pun in here, an intentional one, and I hope that you get it. The title of this sermon is A Lot of Mistakes, Rethinking the Time in the Cave. And I want to tell you, before we get started, I was talking to Dave and uh, Doris about this here just a, uh, a while before we got started, is that I, when I do these sermons, I always question everything that I already know. Now, I've read the Bible, and Genesis in particular, probably, you know, 30 times, we'll say. I've, I've read the whole thing many, many times in my life. And um, I came to this particular set of verses with a presupposition. That means something I already believed about them. And I started typing the sermon based on that premise. And I got to a particular verse, and I had to go back and I had to redo the entire sermon. Because I realized that what I had learned, either through reading commentaries or on my own study, was wrong. And I think that you, if you've read this account at least once or more than once, you will see the amazing, I mean absolutely amazing, detail that this has in it and what it points to. And it's something that I never considered I mean, I just, I, I walked around for a couple days after doing this sermon, literally out loud, thanking the Lord and praising him. Absolutely in awe at what his word contains. There's another person that I'll talk about during the sermon, Sergio, who used to attend here, and uh, he did all the video work. And uh, he um, also, uh, I talked to him about it, and he helped me with this sermon. And he, I, I want to mention, he also helped me with the sermon last week. And I didn't mention him during the sermon. I wanted to give him thanks, is the... Uh, where I said the account in Sodom, a particular part of it, was actually prefiguring the work of Paul. And I talked to him about it, and we came to this resolution, and he came up with a couple of ideas that I hadn't considered. So I want to thank Sergio for that, because he's always very good. When I have a question about something that's very uh, detailed in the Hebrew, he's a good guy to go to, because he not only speaks Hebrew, being from Israel, but he also knows how to make comparative analysis from other passages in the Bible. And I will bring that up again. So, a lot of mistakes rethinking the time in the cave, but before we get into that, you know that it's 30 September, and... This day in history, which I do every single week, uh, on 1777, the Congress of the United States moved from York, Pennsylvania, due to the advancing British troops. So we had uh, a Congress that was willing to get up and move in order to be destroyed. And I was thinking about that this morning, is that we have a Congress and a White House and a uh, Supreme Court that wouldn't move out of its own way anymore. And we are facing certain destruction in this nation and they're not willing to move, whereas these people were godly people, they were our founding fathers, and they were willing to just say, what we have here isn't of value. We're not going to cede to these British. We're going to move on, and we're going to reestablish somewhere else. You would never find that today. It's going to take an act of God bigger than 9-11 for us to come to the realization that we need to move and we need to act. Anyway, um, 1846, ether, which at the time was experimental as an antiseptic, was used for the very first time by a guy named Dr. William Morton at Massachusetts General Hospital. And thank goodness for that. I was thinking about that this morning. We've had quite a few people at Church on the Beach over the past year and a half that, you know, uh, hip surgeries and knee surgeries and this and that and one thing and another. And we had a, a girl that attends who's not here today who went through surgery this past week. And, you know, of course, you need anesthesia. 
thank God that he has put us in this time. Because if I was born 500 years ago, I'm the biggest sissy in the world when it comes to pain. And my mom will tell you that. I, I do not handle pain well. Um, so thank you, Lord, for putting me here at this date and time. 1861, a guy named William Wrigley Jr. was born. Oh, Wrigley Stadium, I couldn't care about that. It's the chewing gum that I like. Thank you, Lord, for giving us uh, somebody that invented uh, Wrigley's chewing gum. You got the, the spearmint and you've got the juicy fruit. And man, I just, I got to tell you, I grew up on that stuff. And uh, when, I'm, when I'm in a hurt locker, I just go to the store and I buy a pack and I put it in my car and I pull it out and chew on it and it just, it makes everything better. Um, 1938, the Munich Conference. Oh, you talk about that which has been will be again. The Munich Conference was ended with the decision to appease Hitler. Uh, Britain and France allowed Czechoslovakia's Sudetenland to be annexed by the Nazis, saying we're going to have peace by caving in. And, uh, of course, uh, Chamberlain on this day, 30 September, gave his peace in our time speech, and he waved that worthless piece of paper, and it cost millions and millions of people their lives because he was willing to, rather than hold to values and to stand firm against a certain loser, he waffled. And we've got that going on in our White House right now, not only with this nation, but we also have it going on in the White House right now against the people of Israel, trying to barter something away in order to secure peace. And that, as the Bible says several times, you say peace, peace, when there is no peace. And there we go. That which has been will be again, and that which has been done will be done again, and there is nothing new under the sun. And we can look in our White House to see that. And then in 1980, we have a new currency issued in Israel. Anybody know what they spend in Israel? I know Kelly does. The what? No, not the drachma. That's Greece. The shekel. The shekel was reissued after, believe it or not, this is what they used in biblical times. So here we have in the 1860s or 70s, I can't remember right off the top of my head, but Eliezer ben Yehuda went and from Europe. He moved down to Israel, and the day he arrived with his wife, he says, we're not going to ever speak anything but Hebrew again. That's it. And he revived almost single-handedly the Hebrew language, which was dead for over 2,500 years. It was the only language, dead language, ever to become a common language again in history. After that, of course, in 1948, the miraculous delivery of the nation of Israel becoming its own nation again, turning on the, uh, the uh, radio and saying the nation of Israel is now reestablished. And just before that, coincidentally maybe, maybe not, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found one year before that occurred. God's hand of providence showing us that not only are these oracles true, but they will verify everything I've been saying for these thousands of years. So we have all these miracles going on. June 6, 1967, what happens? Jerusalem is recaptured. Overwhelming odds in both the 48 and the 67 wars, and yet they won because God's hand is upon these people. And then in 1980, the shekel is reintroduced. You don't think Jesus is going to come back and sit in the throne in Jerusalem and go down to buy lunch and use euros, do you? Or the pound, which replaced it. No. If he goes shopping at all, which I'm not trying to make any commentary on what Jesus did, he's going to shop with shekels. Anyway, the monetary system for the temple, for everything, is set up for the Lord's return. And it's, it's just beautiful how these things are coming out in our lifetime. Prophecy is being fulfilled. And yet people do this. They just don't want to acknowledge it and they want to hide from it. So, okay, one more thing I'm going to do before the sermon, which I've never done. And I, I feel ashamed because this is the 43rd sermon in the book of Genesis since we started, uh, I don't know, 43 weeks ago. Is uh, uh, I've never read the passage before analyzing it. And I thought this week, I said, what an idiot. You know, people 
that don't come here, they're here for the first time and they have no idea what I'm, I'm just starting in and I kind of mentioned what we talked about. But here we go. We're going to read the passage week after week before giving the sermon and I hope that will help you to have a grasp of what will be talked about. Here we go. This is from Genesis 19. Um, actually, I'm going to start in verse 30. No, I'm going, to, I'm going to start with the whole thing, which I did not record here. I'm going to start with 27, so that means I've got to get out my Bible. Uh, Genesis 19, we're going to start with 27. And I'm in Genesis 27. I need to get to Genesis 19, verse 27. And um, here we go. 27. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw and behold the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains and his two daughters were with him for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. And I'm going to read some things that if you've never read this before, I don't want you to be shocked and I don't want you to have any presuppositions about what we're going to talk about as I did because you're going to see something so beautiful unfold from these verses it will astonish you. And if you're not astonished, you're either dead or you already know what I'm going to come to. Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. 32. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of all the Moabites to this day. And the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, big question for you. How many of you have ever made a mistake? Anyone? Don't raise your hand. It's okay. I, I... <laughs> now, how many of you made a mistake which involved disobeying God? Don't raise your hand. I'm just asking you to think this through. Anyone done that? All right. How many of you have disobeyed God since you became a Christian? I know I have. Since this morning, I've disobeyed him hundreds of times. You know, the, the prime law, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest law of all? He went back to the Bible, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the, the first commandment and then the second commandment. I skipped a little part in there. Anyway, I failed to do that every minute of my life. Therefore, I'm guilty before the law every minute of my life. So obviously I have failed all three of these, but I want to ask you something. Despite having made a mistake and it having diso involved disobeying God and it happened after you be became a Christian, did anything good come out of it? Think that through. Maybe here's a, uh, an example that would only pertain to the women, unless you try to genetically engineer men somehow. A woman has a child out of wedlock. Well, that was certainly a mistake. It certainly involved being disobedient to God, and it may even have been since she became a Christian. But did good come out of that? 
The question is, does she love her child? Has that child become a Christian since it was born? And would that woman trade that child for anything on earth? God has made something good come out of the evil that she did. I bet if you think through all of the crummy and disobedient things that you have done in your personal life, even as a Christian, that you will still be able to find something good that came out of it. This is how God works. However, and I want to make sure that you understand this based on what we talked about from the book of Romans, Preacher Charlie is not telling you to be disobedient so that good may result. Paul warns us of that attitude. He starts in Romans 3 and he goes all the way through the book of Romans. What I am saying is that God knows our limitations and he already knows where we will fail before we do. You see, even when we are disobedient, God can and he does bring good out of the evil. Today, we're going to look over something that almost every Bible scholar in history has found sinful. If that's true, then God has made something good come out of it. Now, if, as I believe, after having started this sermon and redoing it based on what the conclusion I came to, that this wasn't based on disobedience and it wasn't based on anything evil, then we have another example all the way from the beginning, Genesis 3, all the way through to this point. We have another example of two young girls living by faith in what they believe and which ultimately brings about an amazing sequence of events which leads directly to Jesus Christ, our Messiah. There are times when you read the Bible, you might ask yourself, and you may have asked yourself these questions when I was reading that passage, why is this story in here at all? Can someone please explain to me why this is here and what the relevance of it is in my own life? Today may be one of those stories. And because we cannot figure out why it's there, we try to find reasons why the story is bad and we're to learn a moral lesson from it, even when actually good may be hidden deep in it. And that's what God wants us to discover. If it is in the Bible, and I assure you this is true, it leads to Jesus Christ. Old Testament, if it's in the Bible and it's a New Testament, it's explaining Jesus Christ. And this is true even when it involves incest, drunkenness, and possibly even wrong thinking. So we need to review this story, which is so covered in these things that we close our eyes and we try to hide from them even as we read them. Oh God, I would never, ever do that. Thanks for the lesson of how not to act. But this is not at all what we are to learn from this account as we will see in the next hour. Our text verse for today comes from the hand of Rabbi Paul, the great Jewish apostle to the Gentiles. And he writes these words, and to me they're the most beautiful words outside of the Psalms, possibly in the entire Bible. He writes in Romans 11:33 through 36, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Yes, all glory to this wise and wonderful creator, and so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought, once again, look for the pun, a lot of God's mercy. Verse 27. And Abraham went in early in the morning to the place he had stood before the Lord. Just one day earlier, the Lord and the two messengers arrived to announce the coming birth of the son of promise, who is Isaac. After their meal, 
And after assuring Sarah that a child would come through her, the Lord told Abraham that he was headed down to Sodom to determine its state and to destroy it. Before he left, he received, uh, Abraham received a promise that if just 10 righteous people could be found there, he would spare the entire city. And it was probably a very sleepless night for Abraham, wondering if Lot had met even the most basic example of being a faithful witness to his wife, his children, and to six other people. If he had simply got nine converts, the destruction would have been averted. But Abraham seemed to know better because he got up early in the morning and went to the exact spot where he could see the area south of him. It's where he had talked with the Lord. From that spot, if you ever go to Israel, you'll know this. You can see the entire region of the south where Lot lived. And it seems that his fears about Lot were well-founded. Before I get into the next verse, I want to say that every single month, I send out a daily devotional around the entire world, and every single month, on the last day of the month, and then on the first day of the month, I do the same thing. I say, did you talk to the person this month that you said you were going to talk to Jesus about? I did it today. Today is the 30th of September, and tomorrow I'll remind him that September's gone. You will never get that month back, ever. And October is coming. And those people may die. As I said to uh, somebody here just uh, a few minutes ago, a person that I is a friend of mine on Facebook died a day ago. And uh, I'll never have a chance to talk to him again. One girl that uh, comes out here regularly probably isn't here today because of that. And um, that's just the way life is. So Lot failed to talk to just nine people into coming to salvation and to understanding who the Lord is and what he expects from humans. And an entire culture was destroyed because of that. Anyway, verse 28. Then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. If you go to Israel, this spot overlooks the entire region to the south, just as it's described. God had chosen a time when Abraham would be living at this particular location in order to destroy Sodom. In other words, Abraham just moves around. He's, he's uh, you know, living in a tent, and he moves from place to place. But God specifically chose this so that Abraham could see this. The lesson is for Abraham, and the record of that lesson becomes a lesson for us as well. Sin will be judged, and it will come at a time when God's people can see that judgment firsthand. The Bible presents many acts of judgment which came against Israel, disobedient Israel, and also against those who came against Israel. And if you think about this next precept, September 11th was not done in a corner. It came on one of the nicest days of the year. And this was not by chance, but it happened at the providence of God. If you think about any of the big supposed natural disasters, but they are the judgment of God, they always happen on clear days. Have you ever thought about that? God is wanting us to realize that he is in control of these things. And they always happen on the clearest blue days, just like 9-11. As great as God's love is for his people, so is his anger at our sin and rebellion. And it's a lesson that we shouldn't forget. And therefore, he does these things in the open. Imagine what Abraham thought. Unlike a volcano or maybe an earthquake, which is an unplanned event, he looked out there and he saw something that he had been foretold would happen. There was no doubt that this was an act of God. All of us can sit here and we can debate the significance of 9-11, but to Abraham there was no doubt that what happened was a result of God's divine judgment. He must have been upset for Lot, thinking he was dead. He must have been upset at Lot because he was unable 
to get his relatives and nine other people, or I'm sorry, six other people, nine people total, to convert to righteous living. And he must have been upset about Lot because he was his relative and he was his friend. Looking at the smoke must have been a very, very sad moment in Abraham's lives. The term that is used in this particular verse for furnace is the word kibshan. And that word is only used four times in the entire Old Testament. And it's only used one time in the same context as this. It was used in a similar manner when the law was received at Mount Sinai, interestingly enough. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, Kibshan, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. Now, why would they be compared to each other? God's judgment was demonstrated in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And believe it or not, God's judgment was demonstrated at the top of Mount Sinai because the law brings wrath, the New Testament says. It brings about condemnation. It shows us how utterly sinful sin is, and it tells us that we need something greater, and that is Jesus. And therefore, the smoke of the furnace was seen in both of these locations. The New Testament has one such example as well. Now, I know the New Testament is in Greek. I'm not trying to mix apples and oranges, but it's the same concept. There is a time coming upon the world when God's judgment will be affected. And at this time, the very pit of hell is going to be opened. Here's what it says from the book of Revelation. It's chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. This Sodom and Gomorrah, as we've talked about for three full sermons, was a picture of judgment coming upon the world. Jude makes it absolutely clear, as do other authors in the New Testament. Revelation is the execution of that judgment, which will come upon the world. And in the middle is the law that is given, saying that this is what you will be judged by unless you come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So you see how God is working, and he's showing these things so that we can understand what he loves and what he doesn't love. We come to verse 29. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. Now, remember, when Noah was on the ark, it said God remembered Noah. Well, God is remembering his faithful, righteous man here as well. The verse here concerning this judgment uses God or Elohim rather than Lord or Jehovah to describe the one who administered the judgment. Even though when it actually happened and we reviewed those verses, it said that the Lord did it. The difference between the uses of these two terms is the person who is mentioned in the verse. The person mentioned is Abraham. God is a judge of all the earth, and he is elsewhere described as a consuming fire. But he is also a friend of the righteous. And so God remembered his friend Abraham and rescued Lot in the midst of the overthrow. Now, there is no contradiction in this because the Lord is God, and God is the Lord. The terminology is changing for our benefit and for our understanding of God's righteous nature. And that leads us to our second thought today, which is not a lot of choices. The narrative now changes focus. Lot is still the center of attention, as he has been for the past several sermons. But judgment is no longer coming. Judgment has come. 
we come to verse 30. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him, for he was afraid to dwell in Zoar. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Lot has been reduced from a man with a wife. He had daughters. He had a seat among the judges. He had a vast amount of wealth and servants to a man with two daughters and no more than he could carry, living in a cave that God provided because he didn't build it himself. On the night before Sodom's destruction, he was told to take his family and head for the mountains. And instead of doing this, you remember, he asked to be allowed to enter the little town of Zoar instead. And what he should have done in the first place, which is go out to the mountains, he failed to do. But now that he's living in Zoar, he's afraid to live there, even though the Lord has granted him to do so. And so he moves to the mountains. Both of his choices here seem to show an unwillingness to simply take the Lord at his word and to be obedient to that word. And so off he goes to live in a cave with his daughters. It doesn't say why he was afraid to live in Zoar. But several possibilities came to mind, and I like to give those possibilities so that you can think these verses through. The first is that he may have figured that the destruction was coming upon Zoar sooner or later because they were spared only because he was sent there and he was afraid to live there because the judgment would eventually come. As I showed you a week ago, though, that place is still there a thousand years later at the time of Jeremiah. God's mercy was granted to Zoar, and it continued on for a very long time. A second reason that he may have worried was the rising of the waters. I was thinking about that, and the reason why is because the topography had changed. The Dead Sea, which if you've been there, you know it's just a big chasm in the ground, had at one time been an area of plains and fields. That's the way the Bible describes it. The Jordan went in, and it was well watered, and there was all these plains and fields. And so the water is going in, and it's rising. And Zoar would have been in this area, and he may have thought, well, that's a threat to me. And third, he might have feared because the people of Zoar may have actually thought that the judgment of Sodom was his fault, and now the judgment was going to come to Zoar, as if he was the cause of it. So those are the three things that I could think of as to possibly why he would want to move out of Zoar and into the mountains. Whatever the reason, Lot decided to do what he had been told to do in the first place, go off to the mountains. About this particular verse, Adam Clark says this, Foolish man is ever preferring his own wisdom to that of his maker. And I was thinking about that today as I was preparing for this, is that we do this continuously. I'm going to do this even though the Bible says don't do it. Or I'm not going to do this even though the Bible says to do it. And we are preferring our own wisdom over what God has already laid out. And in the end, that's only going to cause us sorrow. It's going to cause us sadness. It's going to cause us woe. Because God has given, he created us. If he created us, then he knows what is best for us. And he's not going to intentionally deceive us in his word. Therefore, we follow his word at our benefit, and we don't follow it at our own peril. It's not God's fault. Verse 31, now the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old, and there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. It's just Lot and his two daughters in the cave. And when the older says there is no man on earth to come into us, this can only be for a couple of reasons why she would think this. The first is that they believe that the destruction of Sodom had killed everyone on earth and that they are the last two to carry on the human race. Right here is where I started to question my own thinking about this entire account. Because every commentary that I've ever read, and some of them going back thousands of years, ancient Jewish commentaries and early church commentaries, basically say this. The whole world they thought was destroyed, and so they want to carry on dad's name. 
And thinking this through on my own, I realized that certainly is not the case. And so I started to question the entire account is the reason why we know that this is not right. And it's obvious right from the text is they had just left Zoar. And there were people in Zoar when they left. Plus, even an idiot standing in a cave on a hill can look out and see that the destruction was isolated. It is not a good option. But people are saying these things and it gets repeated and people don't think them through. A second option is that because they were the only survivors of an entire group of people that were destroyed by God, no one would want to be associated with them. Now, this is a lot more likely than the first option, and it reflects the attitudes of the people all over the world. I'm just not good enough. And I know people that are like this on Facebook all the time. I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough in this or that or sports or, or relationships or one thing or another. I'm not good enough. And then they may even add, God hates me and everyone else will too. Well, in this case, the girls certainly didn't think that because they were rescued, but they may have an insecurity complex based on what occurred. A third option, and the one that I favor, because I know that it's right, is that no man on earth has nothing to do with availability, but rather accessibility. It is a general term. It is not a specific one. Lot moved to the mountains, which are not a place where people would normally live. These mountains and the surrounding hills are especially inhabitable. Or if you've ever been there, mom's been there, Kelly's been there. I, I brought this up a couple of times. Doris has been here. You know this. And because of this, there are no guys coming around for lunch. And I can tell you, I'll give you an example so that you can put that into your head. Availability rather than accessibility. I drove around the U.S. a couple of years ago. It was 2010. And I drove past areas that were so remote that I would not see another house going 70 miles an hour for sometimes one or two hours. I, South Dakota, North Dakota, I went to every state in the continental 48 and then I flew to Alaska and Hawaii and I saw things that were so remote I couldn't believe people were there. And I would see in those yards with this single house and nothing else around, children playing in the yard. And my thought at that time was how are they ever going to meet somebody to marry. That's what I was thinking. How, how are they going to do it? And then I thought, how on earth did they do it before roads and before cars? I mean, it's a two or three day journey just to get to your neighbor's house. And what if he's ugly? I mean, you know what I'm saying? How are you going to meet somebody in a, a situation like that? And these girls are just like them. They're so removed from anybody else that they cannot imagine ever having a man. And so they devise a plan to have their own children, even if they can't have their own husband. Verse 32, come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him. The very fact that they want to get their father drunk tells us that they know that their father wouldn't agree to this. But I'm going to tell you something else. It also proves that there were other men on the earth and they knew it because if they were the last two girls and he was the last guy on earth, they would have simply told dad that we need to carry on the human race. So this implicitly proves what I'm saying right there. In this, the previous verse, the daughter said, our father is old. Not only are there no other men around, but dad may kick off at some point too before he could get married again. If so, then his name will die out. This is surely what she's thinking, contrary to what you may have been thinking all along, because verse 32 continues, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. And here's the second proof that there are men available, but just not accessible. They have a distinct purpose in what they're doing. It is to preserve Lot's lineage, not the human race and not their own heritage. 
Without the ability to trace our lineage, we lose touch with the very marker which God has identified us with. In the Bible, this marker comes through the Father. If you heard my three sermons on chapter 10, the table of nations, you can understand this. What is very important here is the word lineage that the New King James Version uses. Some versions will use the word seed. The word is zara in Hebrew, and it does mean seed. These girls wanted to preserve the seed. And the question is, why? Because they think that what they are doing, and this may sound like a stretch, but bear with me, they believe that they are saving the line of the Messiah. Think it through. They are from the line of Shem, Noah's son of promise. They are from the line of Haran, the oldest son of Terah, the older brother of Abraham. And they have every reason to believe that it is Haran, because he's the oldest son of Terah, who was the son of promise. And Lot is Haran's son. And now they see that they've been miraculously saved from Sodom. The conclusion is that this is God's will to keep Lot's seed alive as it leads to the promised one, the Messiah. This idea stands even more likely because they were virgins, even though they lived in an especially wicked place like Sodom. They had lived pure and upright lives, and because of this, they were spared. And this isn't mere speculation either. We will see in a little while that the very names that they give their children will bear this out. Now, what we need to do is we need to look at exactly what these girls said. And the reason why is this verse is what changed my mind about the entire account right here. The verse says um, there are two possibilities. I'll read you the Hebrew first. Un haye me avinu It has two possible translations, and all, all translations will give you the first one. When you read it, this is what you're going to see, something like this. And we will make the seed of our father alive. We are going to do something, and something will result because of that. That's actually a picture of work-based salvation, by the way. The second translation is possible. Nobody uses it. But it is possible, and I know this because first I wrote to a Hebrew scholar that I know, He checked it out. He wasn't sure. I went to Sergio immediately afterward because Sergio wasn't available at the time. Sergio went in and he thought it through. He he realized it was right. Then he came back and he said, I don't want to be wrong on this. And then he went and did a comparative analysis. And I assure you that this is right. This is the second translation. And we will live from our father's seed. Something will happen to us because of something that results. Okay, let me read both of them again. And we will make the seed of our father alive or and we will live from our father's seed. Although most translations use the first, and I mean most, I mean all, the second when taken in the overall context of the Bible makes much more sense. The only time, the only other time that this word Nahaya is used in the way that these girls are using it is in 1 Kings when speaking of animals that were running out of hay and they were dying. In order to revive them, they needed to find food. And so what the girls say is, and we will live from our father's seed. This might sound tedious. It might sound like picking hairs. But what's happening with these two girls, and I assure you of this, is as important as any doctrine that is found in the entire Bible. And it points directly to the work of Jesus Christ. And it is not at all what most people think, that a couple of girls were lonely and they wanted children for themselves. So we're going to think this through. The Bible teaches that we are dead in our sins but that Christ makes us alive. He is the one to revive the dead spirit. And this is what the Bible teaches from Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man, 
all the way to the last page of Revelation. The coming Messiah is the one who will restore life, eternal life to fallen man. Eve knew it. And if you heard that sermon on Eve naming Cain and then Eve naming Abel, there is no doubt that she knew this, as did every faithful person since then. In anticipation of this, the daughter said, so we may live from our father's seed. They are looking at the Messiah and the eternal life that Eve so desperately wanted. She wanted to get back to the Garden of Eden and she couldn't do it. This isn't speaking at all about carrying on their name. It is speaking about being born again through Jesus Christ. These two girls honestly believe that they were a part of the messianic line. And if you doubt this, I want you to hold on a couple more minutes. As a side note, there was no law at this time to forbid what they are proposing. Abraham, who is of the chosen line of God, and living at the exact same time as these two girls married his own sister. And this is something that the law specifically forbids. But at this time, there was no law. Here's what the law says concerning Abraham's type of marriage. It says, the nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born or at home elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. And there were penalties for this. And Abraham did this, but it was before the law. As Paul says in Romans 4.15, and as we talked about again, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, what these girls have done cannot it cannot be counted as sin, just as Abraham marrying his own sister cannot be counted as sin. So we need to get that out of our minds. Verse 33, so they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she had arose. Now, I'm going to be as honest as I can about this particular verse. If the Bible didn't say it, I wouldn't believe it. It takes the responsibility first entirely off of Lot by saying that he didn't know when she lay down or when she arose. And the act is placed completely and solely on the father. But what I can't believe about this is that if somebody is so drunk that they don't know what's going on around them, they are usually too drunk to perform any other actions, if you know what I'm saying. Like I said, if the Bible didn't say this, I could not believe it. Verse 34, it happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Daughter number one did her thing, and so to make sure that dad's line will continue on, daughter number two does the same thing the next day. Once again, the action is placed solely on the daughters. Verse 35, then they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger rose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The only thing that Lot might, and I say might emphatically, be blamed for is getting drunk, but even that when taken in the context of the Bible, is a dubious assertion. In fact, Proverbs says this, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart. Lot is old, and he is perishing, and he is also a soul who is definitely bitter in heart. Fault from a biblical perspective is not to be found where most people try to find it. He is an old man, he's in a cave with his two virgin daughters, and he has no evil intention toward them at all. Later in the Bible, in the book of uh, one or two Peter, I'm not sure which, he's termed righteous. And so the fault that many try to find in what he has done here is simply not to be found. What is evident, what is evident from this verse is both the foreknowledge and the providence of God in this story. This is as clear as in any passage in the entire Bible. Both of these girls 
were virgins. Both had sex and became pregnant on the first night to a drunk man. You will not find a clearer account than this for seeing that what occurred did so to meet God's purposes and his plans in the unfolding pages of redemptive history. We can look back on these verses and see two sides of a coin. The first is that God gives us instructions to do things, and he does so for very good reasons. He has our best intent in mind, and his direction is exactly right for every situation. I mentioned that a couple minutes ago. Think of Bible directives and how your life has gone just right when you obeyed them. God placed you in a particular place in a particular time, and he reminded you of his word. He reminded you of it to you so that you would follow it. And when you did, the best always came out of the situation. However, and this might sound contradictory at first, when we don't follow God's word, we make mistakes. They cause us grief. They cause us sadness. They cause us loss. But despite this, God knew before we made those mistakes the choice that we would make. And therefore, it must fit into his plan, even though it was based on disobedience. Even in the, the March of Nations, we can see that. This would be Lot's life summed up in a nutshell. It would also be most of our lives most of the time, either as individuals or as a nation. We don't obey God's work, and we have grief, we have sadness, and we have loss. But in the end, it ultimately works out for God's purposes. Here is where the other side of the coin is. Lot moved to a wicked city. This is something that if he had asked the Lord, should I move to Sodom? The Lord would have said, don't do it. And then Lot never converted anyone in Sodom, which directly led to the overthrow of Sodom and the destruction of every human soul that was in those cities. This is something I guarantee you the Lord wouldn't approve of. And Lot did not head straight to the mountains, just as the Lord had told him to do. But instead, he looked for another option. He didn't follow the Lord's recommended path. And later, he left the city, and he moved to the mountain, even after the Lord said he could remain in Zoar. We could probably find 20 more things wrong with what Lot did, and we can go back and we can look at our own lives, and we can find a million things that we have done wrong as well. And yet, God will bring good out of it. And that brings us to our third and final thought today, a lot of joy. So here we have this story that's interesting, it's dramatic, it's enticing, and it actually may be alluring in some way. But it is just a story about an old man who has a couple of daughters, and off to the mountains they go to live in a cave and do what is both inappropriate and unjustifiable for reasons that make sense only when Charlie tries to force the narrative. Is that right? Bad mistakes. Our life is filled with bad mistakes, and we have to live with the result of those mistakes whether we like it or not. Isn't that why this story is here? Two young ladies who will have to spend the rest of their lives regretting their bad choices. And isn't God mocking them even today by letting the whole world see how stupid and naughty they were? Verse 36, thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Both girls had sex for the first and maybe the only time in their entire lives with a drunken man who was their father. Both of them got pregnant and now have to suffer the shame of it for all eternity, right? We can laugh at these two, and through sermons, we can show how immoral and how stupid they are, and we can write commentaries from the Bible about it. God must think so. It's why this story is included in here in the first place, isn't it? Verse 37. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. 
He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Oh, a bouncing baby boy. The daughter has a son and she calls him Moab. The name comes from two words, me, which means who, and Ab, which means dad. In modern language, we would call him, who's your daddy? And the answer comes from the story itself and it actually has another meaning, from father. This daughter of Lot is letting the world know that the son is the result of inbreeding. This is obviously not somebody, something that somebody would want known unless there was a very good reason behind it. Verse 38, and the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Oh, another bouncing baby boy, probably born at the same time as Moab, maybe even on the same day. Lot is a busy doctor in his little cave. The younger daughter has a son, and she names him a name that comes from two words as well. Ben simply means son. We see Benjamin Netanyahu over in Israel. His name means son of my right hand, Ben-Yamin. The word Am, the second one, means people. And when you take Am and you postfix it with the I sound, which is the letter Yud, Ami, it becomes my, my people. Son of my people is what she named him. Again, like the older sister's choice of name, this daughter of Lot is letting the world know that this son was born as the result of inbreeding. Again, this is clearly not something that you would want known unless you had a very good reason for doing so. Both of these girls are proud of their accomplishment, even if they're not proud of the deed behind it, which was getting their father drunk. They both have a bundle of joy, and they both believe that their son may be an ancestor of the deliverer who was promised 2,108 years earlier in the Garden of Eden when God spoke to Adam, when God spoke to Eve, and when God spoke to the serpent. They have preserved the line. They have baby boys who they wouldn't trade for all the gold in the world. And there is dad scratching his head and he's wondering what the end of all of this is going to be. As I said at the beginning of this sermon, maybe in your life you've done something which is clearly wrong. Maybe you were a Christian at that time and maybe what you did was in direct disobedience to God. Can it still work out for good? And the answer is yes. Let's not diminish what we've done though. Sin is sin and sin does have consequences. Sometimes these consequences can affect our health. We return to drugs or alcohol, then it'll affect our health. It can affect our relationships, such as adultery, which will certainly affect your relationship. And it may even cost us or someone else our life, such as going in and robbing a bank to feed your children and you get shot. But God still can work through our evil to bring about good. Now, how do I know that? Because the Bible proves it even in the account of these two daughters. You see, in the book of Matthew, in chapter 1, we read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Lord of all creation. And in the fifth verse, we read this. Solomon begot Boaz by Rahab. Rahab was a harlot. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Ruth, if you've ever read the story, is from Moab. She was brought into the covenant people and would eventually become the great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor of the Lord Jesus. And what about the other daughter? What is her mark on history? Two verses down in the same genealogy, we read this in verse seven. Solomon begot Rehoboam. So what, right? Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, is in Jesus' genealogy. 
And guess what we learn about Rehoboam in the book of 1 Kings? And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah, an Ammonitess. Naamah, the mother of Rehoboam, was from the line of the second daughter of Lot. The Ammonites come from her son, Ben-Ami. Clans from both of the sons born to Lot through his daughters became enemies of Israel. In fact, Solomon is rebuked for having married women who came from these countries because they stole his heart away from following the Lord and off to worship false gods. But despite this, women from both of these tribes, the Moabites and the Ammonites, have become ancestors of Jesus. Think about it. The Lord of all of creation, everything that you see, everything you smell, everything that you experience, descended from a man named Lot and from both of his daughters when he had sex with them. He united with them in an incestuous relationship. And guess what that means? That means that their mother, the apostate, the one that turned back to see Sodom and Gomorrah and turned into a pillar of salt is also in Jesus' genealogy. And guess what? That means that Haran, the father of Lot, who died back in Ur of the Chaldees, now we know why his name is recorded in the Bible too. Because they could have just said his older brother died in Ur, but he's given by name. He is in Jesus' genealogy as well. And if that isn't amazing enough for you, as the Bible unfolds, Jesus descends from another incestuous union and also from an adulterer and a murderer and from many other women who were filled with flaws and weaknesses, men and women. Jesus isn't calling the perfect to his family. He's calling you. You see, he can take the evil in our lives and he can turn it out for good. And if he can do this in a plan which started 2,108 years earlier and took another 1,896 more years to be revealed in the birth of his own son, he can do it for you in your short number of years on planet Earth. No matter how stupid your past mistakes are, no matter how terrible your future mistakes are, no matter what anyone else on Earth thinks about you as an individual, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are his child, you are forgiven, and you are free. And as a bonus, your name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. Yeah, we are here to mourn over our sins, we're to turn away from them and we're to be obedient to the Lord. And I can assure you that when you do, your life will be far, far more, more rewarding and much more pleasing to him. But stop beating yourself up over past mistakes and know that despite those mistakes, God has a plan and a purpose for you that has already figured those mistakes into the equation. Despite your flaws, your failings, your fumblings, he has accepted you and he will never, never never forsake you. Through Jesus Christ, he has canceled out every evil and turned it into good. So be of good cheer. Let me explain to you real quickly, in case somebody here has never accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, what all this means. It means that in the stream of time which God created, man violated God's law. And we were separated from him at that time. Infinitely separated. I say it week after week. A finite sin infinitely separates you from an infinite creator. And so in order to resolve that problem that Adam caused in each and every one of us, Jesus Christ came. He was born of a woman and born of the Holy Spirit. And I can tell you that woman was born of a whole bunch of crummy people. 
people just like you and me that have done all kinds of bad things. But Jesus Christ did not inherit Adam's sin. And he lived the law perfectly that you and I can't live for 10 seconds without our mind going off into something else. He did this so that we could be reconciled to that infinite father of his. He's fully man. He can put his hand right on our head and he can say, I have accepted you. And he is fully God. So he can take his infinite hand and he can say, Dad, I have accepted them. I am the mediator and they are covered by my blood. And that is what God has done for us. And if you simply call out on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord, you will be saved. His blood will cover your sins, past, present, and future. And you can never be separated from the love of God the Father ever again. So if you haven't done that today, I would ask that you take the time in your heart to ask Jesus to forgive you and then to do something that would really make him happy. I assure you this. Read your Bible, believe your Bible, and follow the precepts in your Bible. That will make God hugely happy because in this nation that has a Bible in every house, including the house of atheists, it goes unread and covered in dust 99.999% of the time. God will be very pleased with you to know him in his fullness because you cannot know God the Father. You can't know him apart from Jesus Christ. And you cannot know Jesus Christ apart from one source on this planet. And that is the Holy Bible. Please read your Bibles. You'll be done with it in a year twice if you read it 30 minutes a day. Take 77 hours to read the Bible out loud. It's 154 days if you read it 30 minutes a day. Twice in a year you can read your Bible and get to know this wonderful creator. Here's our last thing of the day. Before I get to it, next week is Genesis 20, 1 through 17. It's called Walking in the Land of the Philistines. So please read those verses if you're planning on coming out and uh, uh, we'll talk about them next week. Our poem today, the title of it comes from the book of Isaiah, Beauty from Ashes. The reason why I chose this is because the ashes of Sodom turned into something gloriously beautiful. Despite what we think about that particular account, it turned out to lead to the Messiah of the world. Beauty from ashes. Abraham got up in the morning to the spot he had stood with the Lord. He wondered if Sodom heeded the warning and had accepted God at his word. He looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the plain. He saw smoke like a furnace. God, his wrath, he did not restrain. He destroyed all of the cities, but he remembered Abraham, and he sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow. When he overthrew the cities with a bang and with a bam, God protected his righteous, the one he did know. Then Lot went up out of Zoar and dwelt in the mountains, and both his daughters were with him too. He was afraid to live in the city by its streets and its fountains, and so off to a cave in a hill he withdrew. Now the firstborn daughter said to the younger one, Our father is old, and there is no man around to marry. Come, let us get dad drunk, and by him we can have a son. And his seed through them we will be able to carry. So they got their dad drunk with wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father, even though she knew what she did wasn't right. She went through with it, no caring, nor bother. The next day she said, See, I, last night I laid with my dad. Now it's your turn to do the same as I did. We'll give him wine to make his heart glad. And so both of us through him will have our own kid. So the younger lay also with her father Lot, and he didn't know when she lay down or when up she got. So both daughters by their father were with child, and today we look at the story as if it were wild. The firstborn named her son Moab, meaning, who is your father? And the younger named hers Ben-Ami, son of my people. And though this story may, many people, it does seem to bother, it is something that should be taught beneath the church steeple. 
You see, these three, Lot and his two daughters, became great peoples like the spreading of waters. And every eventually through them came the Savior of the world. Through them came Jesus, as God's great plan has unfurled. Have you done something wrong in your life? Maybe been a drug addict or a prostitute? Have you committed adultery on your husband or wife? Is the hurt in your heart painfully acute? Let God use what has happened in the past to bring him glory now through an obedient life. The good things that come will for eternity last when Jesus as his bride calls us his wife. Great is our God, therefore let's give him great praise and let us live our lives for him all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this story. Thank you for the redemption that comes despite our sins. Thank you for the wondrous working, the mighty hand of Jesus who led us out of the, the land of sin and corruption and death through the waters into the high place where we are seated at the right hand, even now with you in heavenly places. And we know that it is by grace we are saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It is the, your gift. It is your gift to us and we thank you for it. Help each one of us to share that gift with others before this month is through to speak to every person that's in our heart that needs to hear the message one more time. Let us not be lacking or slacking in our, our witness for the greatness of this wonderful and exalted Lord who would use people like this to lead to himself. We love you. We praise you. All glory, all honor, all majesty to you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.